welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain. In this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode we're going to be looking at car chase musicals. But first, following on from the last episode, Martin has now watched the full series of Netflix Hyperdrive. So we've now both seen it all the way through. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the peril as it got harder and harder as the episodes went on they made the course harder and harder they made the obstacles more tricky for the drivers and i found myself watching almost all of them in a couple of nights all of the episodes through uh my wife was hooked as well i have to say i think the right driver won yep spoiler 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 free as was as was several of the competitors yeah. by the end <laughs> yeah. of the event. Yes, they were. There was some damage to those cars. The right driver won with the probably the right people joining him on the podium because I'd say the people who ended up in the top three are either the people with the most skill or the people who are most improved through the contest. I definitely agree with that. It was really nice, actually, to watch something American that was quite so nice and collaborative as well. Instead of being a big pro drive or a big check at the end of it, it was kind of, you know, well done, here's our champion, and that's it. And all the other competitors were so nice about it. They were really cheering on each other as well, and they were commiserating. And There was that feeling of camaraderie, that same thing you get with something like um, Great British Bake Off or whatever it's called in the States, where there's no big money prize at the end of it. They're doing it for the love of it, and they're all in it together, and it's a condensed period of time, and you get that very quick friendships are formed and you can see from the competitors that by and large as they start whittling down and sorting the wheat from the chaff everyone's on everyone else's side and everyone really appreciates a good run everyone really Mm. appreciates um when someone does something they haven't done before and every time something bad happens and you know bad things happen this is competition there's genuine you know, surprise and sadness for, from the other competitors, which you might not get, and certainly you you wouldn't get in professional motorsport because unless it's mm. something extremely unfair or very horrifying, people are pretty much like, ah, suck it, I'm going to win now. <laughs> and it was great as well that it was so many amateur competitors. There was no great truck of spares. There was no, you know, the, the cars weren't perfect. Certainly not by also, the end of the show. Well, certainly not by the end. But they were also great individual cars. Everyone sort of brought their little thing. And we should say that since the show aired, there have been a number of behind-the-scenes YouTube videos popping up from some of the drivers, and they talk about having a couple of mechanics on hand, putting lights into the cars. I think they wrapped a couple of the cars to make them a bit more spectacular. I did wonder watching that whether or not people had had their cars wrapped by the show specifically to make them more visually appealing for TV. I think some of them come wrapped anyway because they're drift cars and they want to look loud and yeah. proud. But it was um, it's worth actually mentioning, we'll put in the show notes, there was a VinWiki video by one of the competitors whose name escapes me, who drove a GTR and was rather... What's the well? A bit of a bellend. <laughs> bit of a bellend. I think we can get away with that without politely. disturbing the senses. He was very, very <laughs> cocky, very rich, turned up with this mint Mercedes GTR and he just couldn't drive it. And he kept blaming the car, he kept blaming the traction control system, and he he couldn't get it to step out, 
you know, can't make a Mercedes AMG go sideways. I'm pretty sure even <laughs> I could manage that. So, yeah, it's, he he had some fascinating insights on what the filming experience was like, you know, done in three weeks, very little on-site support. Everyone was expected to just get on with it. But he didn't cover himself in glory in the show. And in this behind-the-scenes clip, he doesn't really come across as being a particularly genuine guy in the way that lots of the other competitors do. He comes across as being a kid with too much money and not enough talent. Mm, Definitely. I actually had a tweet from Alan Bradley of the Motoring Podcast who mentioned one of his friends that he went to school with who he thought would have a good drift name. But thinking about it... I know who I would nominate to go into Series 2 of Hyperdrive, given the chance. Because I love the fact that there's Rutledge Wood. For those of you who know Top Gear USA, and he does IndyCar uh, colour commentary and that sort of thing, he's like the sane one in the commentary team. All the other two kind of take it up a bit from there. Imagine dropping in the middle of that Henry Catchpole in his rally escort and just seeing this sort of matter and antimatter of these two worlds colliding i think would be utterly fantastic <laughs> you know what anybody in a mark ii escort i'd love to see them take on that course you know big screaming bda bouncing off the limiter <laughs> at eight thousand rpm absolutely fully lit sideways ari vatanen style i'd love to see that i think i think a mark ii escort would actually be quite a good car for it as well i mean it <laughs> From from the the stuff we've seen, it does seem like the competitors were not given a great deal of info about what the course would be like and what kind of skills they'd need. And it turns out that you know being really good at drifting is is one of the main ones. Um, so rally drivers, more of them in there, and you know the classic rally car is your Mark II Escort. Absolutely. Alan also followed on from the BMW Film Festival we had last episode and pointed me at a Mercedes film, which I hadn't seen before. Unfortunately, it wasn't the whole series, but it was a look at a Mercedes marketing campaign during the X Factor, which was choose your own adventure in advert breaks. So there was a film that I think was kind of heisty, and at the end, there was there were two hashtags, which then chose what came in the next episode, and then each of those had another option, which would then be in the third episode. And the video that he sent me a link to, and I'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, was a really interesting look at how it engaged with people, but I can't imagine it would be something that would have any sort of life on YouTube, which is probably why they don't exist anymore. Yeah. It wasn't uh, wasn't the most thrilling thing, but it was an interesting experiment. And I think seeing what car companies are trying to do to get people into their dealerships, into their cars, get their cars into the consciousness of people. Especially young who, people. Especially young people. It's the only reason that they probably put you know the A45 out there now, because it seems like there's lots of young people driving you those You see a lot of them days. around. I think this was Mercedes' attempt to get themselves a lower average age of customer. And they've been trying to do that for years. And I think this ad may have done a little bit of it, but honestly, it's the Mercedes A45 AMG on a really good monthly PCP deal um, mm. with free and easy finance. That's what's getting people, that's what's getting more of them on the road and in the hands of people who might otherwise not be able to afford them. Um, for better or for worse, everyone I see driving one drives it like a knob. 
but that's true. It's it, you know it's a nice looking car if you take it in a subtle version, but every one I see is very aggressively driven, so it kind of puts me off it. But anyway, we've digressed. <laughs> if, if they if they want to make young people buy Mercedes, they should just plaster that photo of Jay Z in a late nineties. Is it an E class or something in London? Have you seen this? No. I, I will I will tweet it out. It's a photo of Jay Z in this taxi spec. I think it's an E class with the Mercedes hubcaps on, and he can't be more than about twenty. And it was somewhere in Britain. It's just bizarre, but. It has this... If they put that on billboards, just everywhere, and said, look, Jay-Z. That's not going to sell new Mercedes, though, Chris. That's going to sell old E-classes. You say that like it's a bad thing. Well, it is for Mercedes. They're not going to get any money from that. You know, if you're an old Mercedes independent garage, then you're going to get loads of money because lots of things (laughs) will have gone wrong for it. But that's not going to make them sell, you know, new C-classes. You know what? Mercedes are missing an opportunity here. You know, like, Jaguar doing those continuity cars and... Uh, Shelby and people like that if Mercedes went back to the plans started building the SEC again and put in like CarPlay air conditioning and just made it look that cool they would sell thousands of those well, they wouldn't they'd sell I mean I'm not surprised that they I, I'm surprised they haven't done it already because like you say Aston are doing it Jag are doing it I'm surprised they haven't taken the chance to make some more gull wings, but I, they seem very protective and very proud of their their history and not wanting to sully it, especially when their Formula One team is grinding the competitors into dust mm. and has been doing so for the last few years. They see the, no the point S- in doing it. The SEC isn't the gull wing. The SEC is the one that... It's, uh, I think it's mid-90s, and it's got a really wide grille, and it looks like the headlights are too far apart. It's quite kind of squared off and cool. It's the Mercedes deep cut that, if you see it, I... I think I know the one you mean. I'm not sure they'd sell thousands of them. I really don't think they'd sell thousands of them. Because, again, you know, who's going to buy that on... It's not going to be offered on a finance deal. They're going to go and get themselves, you know, the new A35 AMG or they're going to try and get a CLA45 AMG or something along those lines, yeah. Can you get it below 500 quid a month and, you know, screw how big the the balloon is at the end of the payment? Uh, See, they never had this problem with the Sultan of Brunei when he put the, you know, 300 uh, SL body onto something modern. He didn't put on finance. Because he, he just, just gave them some gold. Buckets of cash. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, uh, moving on from there and on to another favourite topic of ours, Fast and Furious movies, um, Richard Porter has written an article in the latest uh, issue of the Road Rat magazine. Road Rat magazine is a quarterly premium car magazine. Uh, costs £40 for a year subscription, which is well worth it. Sounds like a lot of money, Mm. but these things are nearly an inch thick and the journalism is spectacular. Very in-depth articles. I really recommend you get a copy. Um, The current issue has this article written by Richard Porter who had not watched any of the Fast and Furious films and so decided to watch all of them in a single day. (laughs) Starting at midday and ending just after midnight... All eight movies in one go, and he liked them, which I was quite surprised at. It's a really good read, and for someone like Richard Porter, who has a 
a very satirical edge to his writing and could very easily dig into all the obvious things that are wrong with the Fast and Furious franchise. He gets it. He's in on the joke, just like all of the cast are apart from Vin Diesel. (laughs) And so it's just a wonderful read for those of us who do love these movies of him spotting all the things that we also don't like, but rejoicing in all the things that we do like. Although he doesn't like Tokyo Drift. Oh, and I thought he was such a nice man. Anyway, I really recommend uh, reading that. If you've got a Road Rat subscription, you've probably read it already. If you haven't got a Road Rat subscription and you've got 40 quid burning a hole in your pocket, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant magazine. Definitely, definitely agree with that. I'd love to know if he was drinking Corona the whole time. <laughs> he does mention towards the end of drinking whiskey and getting a bit misty-eyed at the end of Fast and Furious 7. <laughs> That's understandable. That's understandable. In other big Hollywood news, the first reviews of, as we're going to call it, Ford versus Ferrari, because that is the only title it should have, have come out from the Toronto Film Festival, is it? Yeah, it's the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, and I spotted this on gamesradar.com, of all places. They've given it three stars, and they say that, you know, it's a bit hokey. The um, The performances are great. The on-track stuff is fantastic, really well staged. The off-track is a little more rote. And I can see why that is. These are major Hollywood executives funding this movie and they're not going to want to have something that's super accurate and very slightly edgy. They're going to want to swing for the fences and appeal to as many people as possible and that's going to mean that the story beats are going to be Hollywoodized. I'm there for the racing action. Uh, I'm there for the telling of Ferrari being ground into the dust by Ford. Um, Sorry, Ferrari fans. (laughs) Guess you can tell which side I'm on. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing this movie. I know it's out quite soon. I'm going to try and see it ahead of its general release. Um, But yeah, very much looking forward to this. I want to see how Matt Damon does as Carol Shelby, because in my head, Matt Damon is still about 25 and just coming off of (laughs) Goodwill Hunting. And Carol Shelby in my head is about 75 with white hair and grizzled Texan voice. And I can't really square those two opposites. However, you know, he's an actor and he's actually getting on in years a little bit now. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how he does. And Mm. Christian Bale's going to be playing a Brummie. I... I I'm actually quite looking forward to Christian Bale's performance, but I kind of look forward to Christian Bale's performance in almost anything where he's not playing Batman. Yeah, I like him as Batman, but yeah, he's been better in lots and lots of other things. And I'm hoping this is going to be another one of those like Rush, where Mm. it's a movie that can appeal to hardcore racing fans and non-fans alike. I did see a couple of reviews, I think one of them possibly in The Guardian, and I think it basically came down to everyone does exactly what you expect and it's great fun because of it. It's not Grand Prix, but it's fun. I don't think you could ever get Grand Prix made in today's climate, so that's probably as good as we could hope for. I'm interested to actually see, and we should do some sort of Grand Prix comparison. I don't know what you compare it to, but... It struck me as the kind of the film reviewers go to, and I'm wondering how many people are going to go, is it like Grand Prix, forgetting every other car film that's been made? But I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing it, and I'm definitely one where I'll try and find it on the biggest screen that I can. So, the main theme for this show 
is car chase musicals and i have to say everybody that i've spoken to about this podcast every time i've mentioned the idea of cars and films almost everybody has said are you going to do baby driver so martin baby driver so this is edgar wright's 2017 film which was in in the making for a very, very long time. I can remember reading interviews with Edgar years and years before the film came out about this movie idea he got called Baby Driver and there was nothing but the title. And your mind can go to some very strange places when you're given a title of Baby Driver. Do you think it's a small child growing up driving little cars around the ground? Is it a, I don't know, is it some horrible horror movie? It could be anything, especially given Edgar Wright's background. Um, What it actually turned out to be is an action car chase thriller musical romance, which sounds like a mouthful, but that's exactly what the movie is. So this is the story of the titular Baby Driver, and Baby is his name, played by Ansel Elgort. He was a joyrider as a child, and as a result of the joyriding, got into debt with a crime boss called Doc, who's played by Kevin Spacey. And Baby has got tinnitus from a car accident as a child and so he's got what they term the hum in the drum a constant sound which he drowns out by using music playing in vintage ipods all the time to just take away the edge and your way in through the movie is hearing what he's hearing the movie starts with that tone and that then leads into the very start of the music for the first scene And the wonderful thing about Baby Driver is everything is cut to the soundtrack. Everything. Doors close in time. People tap steering wheels in time. Cars are drifted in time. People get shot in time. But not just in time. There's choreographed sound on top of this on time cutting. It's a marvel of cinematic editing. And I think it was up for a couple of Oscars for this. Whether or not it won, I don't know. Um, So Ansel Elgort is this genius prodigy car driver who is the getaway driver for um, crime boss Doc's gang of bank thieves and they all run into a bank he sat outside in the car waiting for them to come out and he then performs the getaway it's a different car each time and he uses all of his skills to get away from the police they switch out a car they go off they split up the dividends and they all go their separate ways and then doc calls them up after a period of time with another job and it's a very slightly different gang of people and the only constant seems to be baby the movie opens with probably one of the great modern cinematic car chases and one of the great modern car chase cars it's a red subaru wrx it's immediately recognizable because it is bright red and it has the absolute what's it's spanked out of it by baby as he is escaping for this bank job again this is all to the sound of music cut perfectly and film cut perfectly so that there's this meld of action and sound and foley and driving skill and stunts The stunts are all practical. There's so little CG in the staging of the car chases. It was all done practically as much as they possibly could. And it's just a joy to watch. From from start to finish, it's a joy to watch. As 
you get into the movie, you see that Baby starts to long for a life away from crime, away from the bank robberies, and meets the waitress at his local diner called Deborah. And between them, they then start to plot a way out of her dead-end diner life and his criminal life. And things go on without me going into spoilers. His personal world collides with his professional world and, you know, action ensues. Um, the, the joy of this is in the pitch-perfect soundtrack. There's all sorts of really deep cuts dropped in here and you've got the actors walking down the street with lyrics from the song appearing subtly in the background as graffiti. Um, you've got soundtrack choices describing, sometimes subtly, sometimes not, the action that's going on, the themes that are going on in the, in, in the movie itself. And then you've got real kick-ass rock music scoring brilliant, brilliant car chases that are filmed with a visceral intensity because they're practical. Um, Edgar Wright, the director of this, has been a brilliant action director for years. I watched his stuff when he did Spaced on, on television in the UK, and he has a very distinctive style, a very distinctive way of cutting, and he's only got better as he's, his career's gone on. But he's never really shown any signs of wanting to do a car chase movie until this one. There's a little chunk in his previous movie, Hot Fuzz, where he stages a, a somewhat piss-takey car chase in two diesel Astras, uh, to kind of point out that, you know, in American car chase movies, you've got big V8 motors, um, but the police in the UK are given snotty voxels to drive around in, and therefore any car chase in one of those is going to be accompanied by a dirty transit noise and clouds of black smoke and not much going fast. Even so, he managed to make that seem pretty cool. A few rig shots hanging off the side of the cars, and right at the very end, there's a Subaru that the police have upgraded to with a wonderful sort of whip cut segment of them smacking it into gear and pulling a massive bootlegger turn and shooting off to go and solve crimes together. And it, that gives you a little hint as to where he was going to go with Baby Driver, but it's it's even more amped up. And honestly, I can remember watching this and just thinking, this is my perfect movie. It's got a brilliant soundtrack. It's got great performances by all the cast. This is pre-Spacey Meltdown, and he's fantastic in this. Mm. For all that his personal life and the, his conduct on set of some movies has been called into question, he's a great actor, and he's got a real... He's got a warmth to him and an edge to him in this. So you, you totally buy that he's a crime boss that would, you know knock off one of his crew if they weren't performing but equally that he has a degree of affection for baby which is why he keeps bringing him back on another job he's his lucky charm um ansel elgore is just wonderful at bringing life to a character that is quite thinly written on the page it's all done in expressions and body language both his body language and the body language of the cars that he's driving he's most expressive when he's behind the wheel of a car driving the hell out of it getting away and you get the the impression that there's a part of him that would want to be doing that all the time and that part of him is at war with the part that knows he can't do it all the time and he really should stop doing it what did you think to Edgar's editing and particularly stepping away from the spaced whip cut 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 style uh, it's the editing here has a rhythm and it's got a rhythm because it's being cut to the music 
And I think I have no problem with Edgar's, you know, very much whip pan cutting. That's been his style for a very long time, especially when used to comedic effect. This is not a comedy. Edgar Wright was very much known for doing comedy in the earlier part of his career. And it's not often that he stepped away from it. This is probably the first non-comedy movie I think you could say he's made. It has funny moments, but it is not a comedy. And it goes to quite some it goes to some quite dark places towards the end of the movie. And so I think he's had to evolve his style to match the material. And it's all the better for it. I don't think this movie movie works with a more frenetic, show-offy cutting style. It's still an Edgar Wright movie. You can tell it is because of the great soundtrack choices mm. and the degree of doing things practically and telling a really good story. I mean, this is written by him as well as directed by him. So it's something he's had at the back of his mind for ages. The whole idea for the movie came from a, a music video he did in 2003 for Mint Royale's Blue Song, where current Bake Off mm. presenter and comedian Noel Fielding dances in the seat of a parked getaway car. <laughs> yeah, he's no, but he never stops being weird. He's done a dry run for this, and if you go back and watch that that song and there's a video of it on youtube that we can put in the show notes you'll see all the seeds of baby driver right there in one five minute video and he's just expanded on that idea and made it epic and certainly made a car chase movie for the millennium this is it tips its hat to mm. things like walter hill's the driver and the french connection but it brings them up to date and in 20 30 years time you're gonna see filmmakers tipping their hat to edgar wright's baby driver i think i'm gonna do a couple of things on the cars the wrx is probably the most exciting car in it there's other cars in there there's there's big lincoln suvs and stuff but the wrx that opens the movie in the first car chase they did some great stuff with that uh, they got a rear wheel drive version that you can see doing all the really big drifts because you can't do that in a four-wheel drive subaru they had one which is rigged up so that the actors can act inside it and then there's a driver perched on the top. And there's a photo I'll, I'll, again, put in the show notes of the driver perched on top of this WRX surrounded by a massive scaffolding rig <laughs> of lights and cameras and everything. It looks crazy. I don't know how you drive one of those things around without making yourself ill. But one of the things that, that Edgar Wright said in interviews is he wanted to put the actors in the action so that you can see their reactions. You can see the hair moving that you know it's real and if there's a look of slight fear on their face then that's because the car is doing things that make them feel slightly fearful and it's all genuine it's all up there and for the money they spent on this movie this cost 35 million dollars to make which probably wouldn't cover the catering budget on an avengers movie <laughs> and it made 220 million ish globally at the box office it's easily the biggest hit of edgar wright's career so far and there's definitely been talk, both from Wright and other actors involved, about doing Baby Driver 2. And I'm pretty sure the studio would want it because while it didn't bring home Avengers-level box office, that's a pretty hefty profit. 34 million production costs, even if you triple that for promotion and everything else, there's still a fat $100 million profit in there. So and that's for, that's for a cast that includes, what, John Hamm... Obviously, Kevin Spacey. John Bernthal's in there. Um, Lily James. There's a, it's, it's not a super starry cast, but it's a cast of names. I'd say the biggest name in there is John Hamm. And, mm. Kevin Spacey aside, of course. And Or um, 
what's his name who played Ray? Oh yeah, Jamie Fox. Yeah, that's fair. Sorry, I was thinking like Ray, like Star Wars Ray. <laughs> I've got very confused there for a second. Jamie Foxx, again, <laughs> I'd put him, he's he's B-plus list. Uh, but then there are no true A-listers in it, which means there's no A-lister budgets needed. And I think everybody involved loved the idea so much, they just went, sure, we'll do it. You know, mm-hmm. we're not going to ask the world because this sounds like such a cool idea. And it is effortlessly cool. It's a film that has... F- Hocus Pocus by Focus. There's not enough yodelling in action movies. It's a film that that, that drops in the original, um, near the intro to Jump Around. It's, it's not, House, not of House of Pain. Pain. It drops in the original. Little yes. Earl? Uh, where you, dum, you dum, hear the start bah, of it. Bah, bah, bah. And then it goes into the Harlem Shuffle, which is the original song that got sampled by House of Pain to do Jump Around. But for people of a certain age, like Chris and I, you think of evenings spent (laughs) at university um, bars jumping around to that thing. Yeah, there's a lot of people comparing that, the, the opening choreography of both the bank robbery and the opening car chase to the opening sequence in La La Land and I would say this kicks that so far out of touch. La La Land is okay but it doesn't have Red Subarus going sideways and frankly (laughs) it would have won the bloody Oscar had it done so. (laughs) Anyway that's my take on Baby Driver. I can't pick holes in it. There's, there's, There's virtually nothing that I would change about this movie. And it's a film that really does reward repeat viewings as well because it reminds me a lot of Scott Pilgrim whereas I kind of know Edgar Wright from the Space Cornetto trilogy collection if you like it's like he's kind of put that in a box and Scott Pilgrim has that same attention to detail it has that same just there's little things in the background there's little things that are yeah it's background gags, little things that you'll catch on the second or third viewing. And you go, oh, I didn't see that. Like that graffiti. The first time I watched the movie, I didn't see mm. any of that stuff. Because you're watching the guy walking through the streets, like you've done with your headphones on, just walking through, in time to the music, having a good time, looking forward to grabbing a cup of coffee or whatever. And I missed all of the little subtleties of the graffiti appearing with the lyrics. And... The second time round, you catch some of it, and the third time round, you see some more. And there's all sorts of great stuff in there to, to pick up on, because that's what Edgar Wright does. His films are very um, tightly interwoven, and he, he thinks about these kind of things and wants to, re- wants to reward repeat viewings. Absolutely, absolutely. Talking of films that have, I've watched a lot, my choice for this week is The Blues Brothers. A film that I actually found out while I was re- did the research for this is almost as old as I am within a few months. So we're talking about the 1980 film Blues Brothers. Opens with John Belushi playing Jake Blues, being released from prison <laughs> with a slightly quirky um, interaction with Frank Oz. If you, if you ever watch the start of the Blues Brothers and go, where's that voice from? Miss Piggy, Kermit the Frog, uh, not Kermit Yoda. the Frog. Yoda, thank you, the other green one. Jake then leaves prison, is met by his brother Elwood. They get into the Bluesmobile and roll out to the orphanage that they grew up in. While they're going there, they have this conversation about 
Elwood had a Cadillac and it was the Bluesmobile. And he said, you got rid of it and you replaced it with this old cop car? He goes, no, I traded it for a microphone. And Jake just goes, okay, fair enough. They they then go to the orphanage where they grew up and they are told by the, the head nun, who they call the Penguin, that they need $5,000 to pay a tax bill, otherwise they're going to be evicted. So, in order to raise the money for the orphanage, Jake and Elwood are going to get the Blues Brothers band back together, play a gig, raise the money, and all will be well, and karmically they'll be all to the good. It is a film, I think, I think we need to talk about three things first of all. Number one is the film. The film itself is really quite flawed. If you watch it purely just as an academic endeavour, the plot is overly long. There are bits that I think should have been cut out. For some reason, Dan Aykroyd's character flirts with Twiggy, who just appears towards the end of the film. And there is just... It's too long, it should be 100 minutes. And the point where you get to 100 minutes, you, it's, there's a big climax. You think, that's it. But no, there's another 25 minutes of car chase, which we will get to later. There are some lovely moments. The Blues Brothers themselves were actually born out of an SNL, Saturday Night Live, sketch. And it was a real passion project between Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, who loved this music, which in the 80s had really fallen out of fashion. Um, they were trying to revive this this old music and they came up with this idea for this film, which apparently was something, was supposed to be a first, at first a two-parter and John Landis basically came in with a big red pen and sort of whittled it down to, to one film over a couple of weeks. It is absolutely a comedy there's some fantastic comedy moments in it but some of them are quite small and little and they just make you smile they have ray charles playing the owner of a music store who he plays as a sighted character even though obviously um ray charles famously is uh, is blind and there's a lovely gag later on when they're trying to sort of put this concert on and he, ray charles is putting a poster up in the uh, in this music store and it's only when the camera pulls back you find out that he's put it on upside down and doesn't know he's there are weird things there's um carrie fisher plays the jilted ex-girlfriend of john belushi's character who basically goes through this escalating series of explosions and has a missile launcher at one point and is trying to to wreak her revenge but this film absolutely stands on the shoulders of John Belushi. He is so charismatic. He's so versatile. He has a moment with Carrie Fisher where he just is the most sincere person and then drops her in a sewer as soon as he realises he's no longer in danger. They're in a restaurant. He turns to the table next to them and goes, The women! How much for the women? Ha ha ha! He he can just play whatever he needs to play. He's this shyster with seemingly no morals at first. And then they're standing in the back of a church and James Brown is performing and there is a literal shaft of light from the heavens 
on to Jake Blues, who then just goes, I see the light, and proceeds to backflip down the front of, down the uh, aisle of the church before dancing at the front in front of James Brown. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about the cars? Right. Let's get to the cars. Actually, no. The cars is, is the third thing. Second thing, the music. The music is fantastic. The whole film is basically ways to get from one song to the next song to the next song. It is almost a jukebox musical before jukebox musicals were a thing. And one thing that I will say before we get onto the cars, I love that all the Blues Brothers band, all the character names are the actual names of those artists. And I had never heard of like Steve Cropper. I'd never heard of Donald Duck Dunn and all these sorts of people. You look into their history. They are fantastically talented, storied musicians. And my God, some of them cannot act to save their life. There is a scene. Some of them. There is a scene with where they go to get Matt Guitar Murphy, who he's playing the husband of Aretha Franklin. Together they're running a soul food restaurant. And Aretha Franklin is just fantastic. He can act the same way that Pierce Brosnan can sing. He is just the most wooden, awful person. But God bless him, he tries. The cars! Get to the cars! So, the Bluesmobile. Dan Aykroyd, notably a car head, um... He's a car guy. He's absolutely a car guy. And there's a scene at the start when they're, where they're driving in the Bluesmobile and he goes, it's got a cop motor, a 440 cubic inch plant. It's got cop tyres, cop suspension, cop shocks. It's a model made before catalytic converter so it'll run good on regular gas. Lovely bit of writing. Turns out that is actually an option pack on the 1974 Dodge Monaco. So when police car, police forces were buying them as patrol cars, you could specify option third, A38, which got you a 440 cubic inch motor, upgraded suspension, upgraded tyres. That's a cool fact. I did not know that. I like that more now. <laughs> the other thing that I, I love as well, we'll come back to my favourite car scene, once they they have this big moment, 100 minutes in, they've got to get from the venue to the tax office to go and pay this money. And they've pissed off at this point the police, the Illinois Nazis, a country and Western band, and they're all out to get them. So they then have 20 glorious minutes of racing through Chicago with this ever-escalating car chase. It actually held the record for, I think it destroyed 103 cars in all the car stunts and chases that were going on. And let's let's be clear here. Realism goes completely out the window. There well, Hollywood are, is known for its realism in car chases, right? Well, absolutely. But there, so there, there is some stuff that's actually really impressive. So they were doing runs through like downtown Chicago at 120 miles an hour because it looks right compared to speeding up film of, of cars going slower. Yeah. But then there would be uh, a couple of police cars go over the verge on the freeway and they roll over and stop at the bottom. 
and then another car and then another car and there comes a point where you're watching it going they're just launching more cars into each other yeah i remember that from watching it and watching it as a younger person thinking this is ridiculous and i love it because it's just it's wanton destruction for destruction's sake it's like watching someone with matchbox cars just ram them into the (laughs) you know into the into the wall and then ram another one into that one and carry on like that it's watching the film equivalent of that and the there's one stunt that doesn't get the credit I think it deserves. So one car chasing them goes up an embankment, gets jumps off the, the, the crest and lands in a moving truck. And the truck then carries on driving down the road with half a car like hanging at the back of it. I, how do you land in a truck and just not have the whole thing fall over? It's It's just... Brilliant, and it's silly, and the whole thing is overblown and silly. Even the scene where James Brown's preaching, there are people on trampolines doing backflips, you know, up in the rafters. It's You cannot take it seriously, but if you approach it as something that is just fun, because it does just get sillier and sillier. There, There's one scene, famously, where Jake and Elwood are being chased by... A couple of Nazis in, I want to say a AMC Pacer. Is that the Wayne's World car? Yes, I think it might be the next one up from the Wayne's World car. And they stop on the edge of this unfinished bridge, and they kind of screech to a halt. The front tires fall over the edge. They put it in reverse. Back tires spin, and the car does a backflip over the Nazis before then driving off into the distance, and. There's apparently there was a scene cut out of the script where because they always park the car under a city transformer, the somehow the car has taken on these magical powers and it has this all this sort of ability. And John Landis, when he was editing it, was sort of um Dan Aykroyd explained it to him and John Landis just went, Okay, magic car, moving on. Um and then you That sounds a very Dan Aykroyd type of thing to do. It sounds very much like his sort of thing. The, the dude sells vodka filtered through mystic crystals in a glass skull. I think it's it's entirely his wheelhouse. But then you've got the Nazis that then go off and you get this scene of this red station wagon falling in front of the Chicago skyline. Which again, apparently they had to go to the um the FAA in the States and prove that a car could fall without just sort of drifting off into a conurbation. And it's, it's there's flying cars in it. There's one scene when, when they're, they're trying to get away from the police and there's obviously ramps and cars just start flipping magically. But my favorite scene in probably the whole film that isn't musical and is entirely car based about 20 minutes in, there is that famous scene where they drive through the mall and they just lead a police car chase through this crowded shopping mall. One, because I found out, again, doing research for this, if you watch it now, all the cars outside the mall in the parking lot are borrowed from a local dealer and all the drivers are basically told, whatever you do, don't damage them because you've got to give them back. So it's all a bit shaky-shaky. But then not only do they have certain shops they can ram into you've got jake and elwood just acting like they're just going for a sort of saturday drive it's silly it's funny they're just crashing into stuff through stuff through plate glass windows and then you watch it and there's they're driving into camera supports and the cameras are the shaking there's one scene where people are running into the cameras because they just can't see them or whatever and it's 
shambolic and it's fun and there's some bits that are obviously set up just to get a laugh you know the car rotating on its roof two police cars doing donuts on a flower stand and but it's just naughty and silly you know even the music and it, i think it, it you know the music from it the dick uh dick uh not the peter gun theme shake your tail feather all of these were kind of forgotten musics and now you play them everywhere and people start tapping their feet. And you can't listen to them now without thinking of the Bluetooth, without thinking of those scenes, without thinking of them driving through the shopping mall. And it's just, as a film, it's it's really pokey and it's about half an hour too long. But as something that is fun, as something that has charisma, it has performances you can just watch again and again and again. And even if you... you you know, even if you just watch it waiting for the next next song or the next car chase, it works and I love it to bits. I wonder if that Top Gear chase scene they did with the Corvette chasing Clarkson in the Fiesta when they did one of their ridiculously oh, over-the-top oh yeah. sensible car reviews, that must have taken its inspiration from the Blues Brothers and it's never yes. occurred to me until just now. That's exactly where it came from. Yeah, but no, done in that kind of inimitable Top Gear style because they were trying to do that sensible car review and going <laughs> vastly over the top with it. I reckon John, John Belushi would have enjoyed that. He'd, he'd have loved it. I've got to say, actually, one one last thing I, I will say: there are Dan Aykroyd's performance, and I think Dan Aykroyd was twenty seven when he made that film. And there's a lot of it's very Dan Aykroyd. It, it reminds me a lot of his performance in Dragnet. Um, but John Belushi, it was, I think, possibly the last or last but one film he ever made. And I think to go out, sadly, with that as your finale, to show your range, to show your sincerity and your vulnerability and your, your talents is a huge shame. But my God, what a legacy to leave. Yeah, way too soon. Speaking of old things going at high speed... What have you been watching? Oh, I'm the king oh, that's of the segment. Seamless. That's seamless. <laughs> Love it. What have you been watching on uh, YouTube this week? Well, funny you should mention it. I've been watching old <laughs> things going at high speed. Uh, I had lots of things to choose from, but I'm going to go with a Goodwood revival because it was last weekend uh, and because it caught my attention on the YouTube live stream. I was watching. Andre Lotterer and Romain Dumas go at it hammer and tongs in the RAC TT Celebration Trophy. Uh, they're both driving AC Cobras, and these two are Le Mans aces. They both come from an LMP1 background, and they're taking no prisoners. I think I tuned into this race halfway through. I left the live stream on in my study while I was doing things around the house in the afternoon and I'd pop in every now and then and see if something interesting was going on. <laughs> I remember popping in to just have a quick look and then sitting down with my mouth wide open, my jaw on the floor, because the the driving was just spectacular. The AC Cobra is a big, powerful car and needs to be driven on the throttle, but it needs to be driven with a bit of respect because it'll bite. And these guys are at 10 tenths. There's no margin left for error anymore. The Revival used to feel a teeny bit like a sort of gentleman's racer event where preserving the car was almost more important than the race, and that has gone out the window in recent years. With this influx of pro drivers, we're not talking about people like Tiff Nadell or John Cleland or these other big names from the past coming and driving these cars. We're talking about current 
top level sports car and racing drivers and they are so far beyond the level of the amateur drivers they're paired with that what seems to happen in these races now is the amateur gets in poodles around for 14 laps make sure they don't drive into anything or spin off and then they hand it over to the pro who then proceeds to make up six laps on the competition (laughs) by driving at the limit the whole time Some of it bothers me because at some point there is going to be an almighty accident and they're going to have to rein the speeds back in. But at the moment, you're you're treated to this spectacle of two of the very best sports car drivers of the current era going at hammer and tongs in almost identical cars. And you're watching them absolutely on top of these machines. There's a moment where... There's four wide coming down the pit straight as three of these cars are going head to head and then a fourth car sneaks out the pits and Roman Dimar sneaks his car through a gap that I don't think is wide enough for an AC Cobra, but he makes it work anyway. They're working traffic like they're doing a night stint at Le Mans and they're working their way through the GT cars. It's phenomenal. And the pace of them compared to everybody else, they drop the rest of the pack like they're third period French. There's a so, phrase I haven't heard in a while. The clip that Good would have put online on YouTube is only the first part of this battle. It's not the stuff I that really sucked me in, unfortunately. They do have a a clip of the whole live stream from Sunday, but unfortunately it's only three hours long instead of the actual 12, so I can't find the bit in the celebration trophy that I'm talking about. But we will try and update the show notes if they put it online. But it's fantastic stuff. To see these cars driven with such accuracy and precision... Uh, by such talents around a circuit as demanding and unforgiving as Goodwood is something to be enjoyed. I don't know if you've listened to the latest Collecting Cars podcast with Tiffany Dell and Chris Harris and co, but they say in, in that be watching cars holding slip angle, watching the them actually working and being able to sort of see the drivers working, you've, you can appreciate even from the outside just the amount of skill to balance those cars the way that they do. Yeah, it's watch when you watch someone who is more used to LMP1 machinery that requires the tiniest of corrections and fractional adjustments of the steering wheel and the throttle, and he's in a car making huge quarter turns either way, you know, stabs of throttle, stabs of steering to keep the car on a on a smooth trajectory. It's it's amazing and you realise that they aren't just good at one thing. The very great drivers are good at anything. Mm, very much so. My choice this week was actually, again, from Alan Bradley. So second recommendation of his in two two episodes. He, for one, reminded me that I need to watch Cloud Dance again because... Climb Dance. Sorry, Climb Dance. Sorry, yes. Ari Vatanen doing amazing things at Pikes Peak. Mostly one-handed, because I think he gets blinded by the sun at one point. It's the famous portion. He's, he's mostly two-handed on there, but yes, the famous portion where he gets the point where the sun's in his eyes and he's doing the whole thing one-handed. However, my choice this week is actually an analysis of the famous, and I'm going to mispronounce it here, Sete un rendezvous? Sete? Sutan? Santa? Sete? Sete un rendezvous? You can tell we don't speak French. Tell us how you're supposed to pronounce it. Please, any French speakers out there, let us know. It's the analysis done by Alex Roy when he was doing stuff on Drive, where he actually traces the route as far as possible, talks about how Claude Lelouch filmed it, what he did right, what he did wrong, and really picks apart quite forensically just what was actually being done and just how dangerous it was that 
he was doing. It's really worth a watch. If you haven't seen the original, go and find a copy on YouTube. Don't watch the one where um, the band who did Chasing Cars have used it for a music video. So they've basically got the footage, taken off the Ferrari soundtrack, and just put their song over the the whole thing. Don't find that one. Find the one with the Ferrari noises, and then watch Alex's analysis. It's really intriguing. It's really great to also see what it looks like now, because it was a proper 70s, dusky drive when they did it and yeah it was an early morning shoot i I went back and rewatched this and two things struck me the first is that anyone who was taken in by that ferrari soundtrack is a fool (laughs) because if you listen to it with headphones on it is so apparent that this is dubbed on over the top the tire noises are some kind of nasty loop and they appear at all the wrong times Mm. and you know, the downshifts, I mean, it sounds phenomenal. It's a beautiful sound of a wailing Ferrari V12. But, you know, all the downshifts and the blips are in the wrong place. There's a point where he appears to be doing 900 miles an hour towards the Arc de Triomphe <laughs> and then breaks 50 metres before and somehow makes the turn. And you just, yeah, the, the sense of speed is sometimes lost now. And I think we've been spoiled by low camera Mm. angles in movies like Baby Driver and Need for Speed and all the others that give you a greater sense of speed than this did. But back in the day, this was the fastest thing you could see on celluloid. And yeah, the the audio editing doesn't hold up. But like Chris says, the the spectacle of taking a car and rinsing it through Paris at 6am going through red lights, going on the wrong side of the road, weaving around slow-moving two CVs. (laughs) That's still stunning. Even now, that's still... There are some hold-your-breath moments in it. I think it's too long. I know that, you know, that's kind of the point it's an eight minute drive through there it start after a while i feel like yeah okay get it come on come on <laughs> but then maybe that's just me being impatient in a, an era of five minute youtube car reviews maybe but it i i think it as the original viral video it absolutely holds its place in the in the firmament of everything that that we do and i love that there are films out there from a time when things like that didn't exist. And more so, I don't think you could do a film like that anymore. I think that there is just too much police. There is too much technology. The roads are too much traffic. too safe. There's yeah. too many people. I mean, I don't think you could do that. Maybe if you drove through London on Christmas Day. And, you know, again, you know, London's covered in CCTV. You'd be nicked for sure. There are too many cameras around to do that kind of thing. I'm pretty sure Alex Roy has thought about recreating this in Paris, if not some <laughs> other city anyway, as this film says but it just couldn't be done now no. um so yeah uh sit out on rendezvous let's call it that let's call it that in fact let's call it a day for this episode if you think we've got it right you think you got it wrong share your thoughts and opinions with us on twitter at auto movie pod or on our facebook page which is auto movie podcast or email us at comments at automoviepodcast.com and if you've liked what you've been listening to, it would be nice if you left us a review on your podcast repository of choice, because we haven't had any. Uh, and it'd be nice no. to get a review, a nice one, preferably. So if you <laughs> want to leave us some nice words, please do. If you want to leave us some dirty words, maybe just send those to the email. <laughs> Definitely. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.